But if you're just rescuing animals on the street or just rescuing an animal who's been injured by a vehicle or a power line or in some other way in distress, you're ultimately just addressing the symptoms of the problem. I wanted to attack the root causes of problems and kind of re-engineer the biggest sectors of the economy to be kinder and better to animals. With those businesses able to succeed, in fact, to flourish even more after they squeeze animal cruelty out of their business model, they're gonna reach new lofty heights. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. And I'm the other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, do we have an incredible episode for you today. I am personally so excited about this. This next guest, is a true thought leader in the area of, how can I put this, of being humane to animals, to our to God's fellow creatures on this earth. And what's really exciting about this interview on a personal note for me is this is a man who marries free market economics with a just social cause and is doing it brilliantly. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Humane Economy, Animal Protection 2.0, How Innovators and Enlightened Consumers Are Transforming the Lives of Animals. I am speaking, of course, of none other than Wayne Pacelli, the CEO of the Humane Society of the America. Did I get that right? Yeah, Humane Society of the United States. Of the United States. Sorry. Sorry about that. Just about perfect. Just about perfect. (laughs) Awesome. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne. It's great to have you, Wayne. Thank you both for having me. Delighted to be with you. Awesome. You know what? One of the things that um, our podcast is about, it's about thought leadership and it's about your expertise. And we absolutely want to hear about that and your message. But the, the title of the podcast is The Business of Thought Leadership. And it's all about how you have taken your thought leadership and used it to make the difference you were born to make, to make the impact you were born to make. So could you tell us a little bit about how you're doing that? And in the process, also tell us a bit about your personal story and why you're passionate about your cause. Well, I have always been concerned about the world. And, you know, in order for our society to succeed, you know, government has to do its job. Business has to do its job. Individual citizens need to fulfill their responsibilities. I mean, we live in a civil society. And among the many things that I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about animals and the planet. And I wrote a book prior to the humane economy called The Bond, and I argue that we humans have an instinctive connection to other creatures. It's manifest through pet keeping, the fact that two-thirds of American households and so many Canadian households have pets. We're nature lovers. We go to national parks. We go to state parks. We enjoy nature programming. So many different things are kind of exhibits A, B, and C of this connection that we have. But it's a tangled connection, right? Because many uses of animals are deeply embedded in our economy. We raise them for food, we use them in science, wildlife management, fashion, entertainment. And how do we reconcile this general sensibility that we have, which is that we love animals and appreciate them and value them in many ways, 
yet we also exploit them on a vast scale. And I've been working on that problem for much of my adult life. And many other animal welfare advocates turn to rescue of animals, helping dogs on the street or rescuing cats or other creatures. And that's noble and wonderful work. And we at the Humane Society of the United States do a tremendous amount of that work. But if you're just rescuing animals on the street or just rescuing an animal who's been injured by a vehicle or a power line or in some other way in distress, you're ultimately just addressing the symptoms of the problem. I wanted to attack the root causes of problems and kind of re-engineer the biggest sectors of the economy to be kinder and better to animals. With those businesses able to succeed, in fact, to flourish even more after they squeeze animal cruelty out of their business model, they're gonna reach new lofty heights. So I've been working on that problem and it's been you know, a lifelong journey for me. Like most of us, you learn more about the world and then you want to take action. I'm the son of a football coach from New Haven, Connecticut. My mother was a secretary. We were a middle-class family, uh, three older siblings. And I've been in Washington now for, for more than 25 years, but travel all around the United States, North America, the world, kind of talking about this idea that we have responsibilities to animals and the planet and that we should be merciful because we've got the creative genius as a species to figure out a new way forward. That's brilliant. I absolutely love it. And you're, what you're doing is you're taking your message out in a very unique way. And I want to just hone in on that for a moment if we can. You've got a book. You've got two books. You you had the bond that you wrote before, and now you've got the book, The Humane Economy. And your message in there, if I may, if I may say it in this way, it's not one of shaming people. It's one of uplifting people, appealing to their better nature. Because God knows there's a whole lot of shaming going on in the world these days of folks and making them feel bad about stuff. You're reaching out to the best within them and you're pointing out about how people are using their creative and innovative genius through the economy, through being scientists to make this happen. To me, this is really thought leadership. It's a unique way of getting uh, a cause to have a lot of adherence to it. Talk a little bit about that, how you've used your platform to make that happen. Well, I think your, your instinct on this is right. I mean, shaming people and making people feel bad is not going to deliver the outcomes that we want. I mean, a lot of people just turn away from these problems. They don't want to deal with it. And if you just have a negative message, at some point, people may tune you out. Now, you know, you do need to call things as they are. If there are terrible things happening, moral outrage, emotions are warranted and useful. But if you just have that as the only stream of thought, you're going to fail. And I really believe in human exceptionalism, that we are a very unique species. And the greatest part of our species is that we have this incredible brain power. Uh, look at the civilization that we've created. You know, I'm speaking to you from New York City, you know, on the 21st floor of a very tall building with other, you know, human constructs around that are miraculous at some level. I mean, just extraordinary. We are capable of so much. Let's harness this human creativity to recognize that we've got a moral problem, we've got factory farming, we've got puppy mills, we've got 
killing of seals for their pelts, whales for their for their meat. We've got a wide range of other problems in our society. Let's figure out a way to have a robust society in terms of economic growth. Uh, let's generate wealth so we can live good lives. Let's cure diseases. Uh, let's have you know the comforts of life to the greatest extent possible without being greedy about it. But let's not forget about the other inhabitants of the planet. They have a rightful place on this planet as well. They have the same spark of life that we have. You look into the eyes of an animal, whether a dog or a cat or a chimp or a cow or any other creature, and you see someone is home. And so much science tells us of animal intelligence and animal cognition. It may not be the same as ours, but there are differences within our own species in terms of intelligence. And we don't, you know, dish out, uh, you know, more rights and 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 give people more, um, you know, the core uh, components of life just because they happen to be better in one thing. We're all equals at some in some sense, and. I think when it comes to our relationship with animals, animals are our equals in their capacity to suffer, and that should warrant our moral attention. Absolutely. It's a great message, and uh, I'd, I'd like to bring this next direction of this question in, in that listeners that are listening right now have their message, and they're making the difference that they want to make in the world, and they need to get their message out there. Now, your message, I have to imagine, has had some pushback. Where have you seen that, and how have you been able to push, push, push through that and deal with it? Absolutely, a lot of pushback. And just because I I take what I think is a rational, hopeful approach, uh, it doesn't mean that you know everything just falls into line perfectly. I mean, what we're trying to do with the Humane Society of the United States and our affiliate, the Humane Society International, which is our global arm, is to to really imagine a new relationship with animals. And when you look at what's happening with animals, I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of good. A lot of people give loving attention to animals in their lives. And we do a lot of protecting of natural areas and defensive endangered species and all sorts of good things that we're capable of. But we also have used human technology, you know, to do some, some pretty tough things to animals. I mean, I think the greatest example in terms of the sharpest example is factory farming. I mean, for for 10,000 years, we've had domesticated animals. Humans domesticated wild animals and put some of those domestic animals to use. Some were pets like and, and, and some helped us in a variety of ways, like, you know, dogs for security and herding and hunting and all sorts of things like that. Others were, were domesticated and used for labor, others for meat and milk and eggs. And the arc of human history in terms of domestication put animals and humans in a relationship. It was often called animal husbandry in terms of agricultural production, where we were tending to the animals. We were stewards. And yes, we were using them uh, for their reproductive products like milk and eggs, but not, and also for their meat. And those animals, you know, the animals killed for meat were, were in fact killed, but their life didn't have to be miserable in the run-up to slaughter. But what, what's happened in the last 60 years is we moved animals from pastures where animals could feel soil beneath their feet, sunlight on their backs, where they could live in social environments that were suitable and natural. They could exhibit normal behaviors. And we put them in these giant windowless buildings, and sometimes we jammed them into cages and crates. 
that are barely larger than the animal's bodies. Six or eight laying hens in a, in a wire cage about the size of a bread box where each bird gets two-thirds the size of a sheet of paper as her living space for the 12 to 18 months she's alive. She can never get out of that cage. It's like, you know, 10 of us being locked in a small closet and we're never able to get out. That is diabolical at some level. And it's an example of human innovation detached from conscience. And what I want to see is human innovation attached to conscience. I want us to figure out a way to get wholesome, affordable, good tasting, nutritional food, but not to leave such a trail of misery and cruelty in our wake. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel that way. I grew up on a hobby farm. We raised our own chickens, cows, sheep. You know, they, they you know, we provided for our own family, but we also provided for our, you know, the, the, the indirect family or uncles, aunts and whatnot. So that's the kind of food that I saw being produced. And, you know, we worked in harmony with them and treated them somewhat as as equals, if you, if you will. So I love the message and I think you're bang on, but I got to believe that there's people that are pushing back and saying, wait a second, this isn't the way. And, and maybe this needs to go, this conversation needs to go back when you were just starting your, your message out. How was that for you as an individual? And what did you need to do to actually say, no, I, I'm going to get this message out there. I'm going to make sure this is heard. And this is, this is, I want people to understand this in a bigger, broader way globally to where you are today. Well, we have, um, we've always, as I argue in the book, had this connection to animals, but there was never a strong enough group to drive kind of a counter force against those industries that kind of ruthlessly exploited animals. You know, factory farming of pigs and chickens and other animals was not designed to hurt the animals. It was designed to be efficient. And we subordinated the the ethic or value of animal welfare in the process. So it, it wasn't intended to be cruel, it just happened that that was the outcome. And we valued this other notion of efficiency over, over animal welfare, as well as environment and sometimes even public health. So when I started as a college student in the mid-1980s, 1985, I started an animal welfare group in college because I had passion for these ideas. I felt like it was a protest movement. And as I got steeped in the issues and became more active and I saw where the resistance was and the resistance was everywhere. People marginalized these ideas, people diminished the value of animals, they denied their intelligence. They tried to construct rationalizations to defend the status quo. And over these last 30 years, things have changed dramatically, partly because we've had a group like the Humane Society of the United States that has had the muscle and the strategic know-how to turn these problems around. So in the last 15 months, we've negotiated 200 agreements with major food retailers, Walmart, McDonald's, Burger King, Cracker Barrel, Safeway, Sodexo, Aramark, every big name brand you can think of to change their purchasing practices to reflect more humane principles in the agricultural production that they rely on for stocking their shelves and for serving their customers. And the commodity groups like the, the National Pork Producers Council, the United Egg Producers, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association have fought us vigorously for years and years and years. And we finally broke through and we went to the retail sector, which is buying the products from these producers and said, hey, listen, you, you guys are serving your customers 
You're supposed to be paying attention to social issues. I mean, you want to provide you know, good food to people and you want it to be affordable, but you don't want to compromise the values of our society. And when those companies changed at our urging, that is then going to reverberate within the production sector and result in changes that they would never on their own submit to. We talked to them and we typically you know, reached a brick wall with one exception after we had a, a lot of conflict with the egg producers, then they did sit down and agree to some changes. But the others just were steadfast in opposing anything because you know, while the watchword of history has changed, individuals and institutions have a tough time with it. And going back to the theme of your show, there's little leadership in the world too little leadership. And many people just continue on with the things that they've been doing for the longest time because it's what they know, it's what they're comfortable with, it's what they're familiar with. It takes something different in some people to kind of chart a new course, to be the innovators, to be the entrepreneurs. That's the set of people that we're going to rely on to change our society for the better. And it's grounded on the notion that, you know, animals deserve better treatment than to be thought of as a production unit or a, or a thing or an object to be manhandled and mishandled any way people want. That's really wonderfully said. This is, this is interesting to me at a personal level. Um, about 20-odd years ago, I was not really aware of these kinds of issues. And I, I love to read. I read a lot of books. I read over 50, 60, sometimes 70 books a year. And I picked up a book that was a novel and interestingly enough, it was written by uh, someone whose name you may recognize, a fellow named G. Gordon Liddy, who uh, <laughs> yes. back in the day was f famous or infamous for Watergate, uh, the man who wouldn't talk, if you will. But this novel shocked me because it was the beginning of my own consciousness about animal rights issues because it was a novel of a bunch of folks who were activists trying to stop a group that was conducting experiments on monkeys for cosmetic reasons, and they were nefarious, and the good guys in this book were the ones who were trying to stop them, and at the end of the day, the good guys won and whatnot. And you wouldn't think of G. Gordon Liddy as being, you know, an animal rights activist, but in that book, his, his whole message was around that and how it was bad, and he had a little postscript at the end of the book. I forget the name of the book. It was a long time ago when I read it. But it was the first time I was awakened that this was, wow, there was people who are doing these things without any thought to, to animals. What opened it up for you? How old were you when this kind of opened up as, as the message that you wanted to latch onto and, and trumpet throughout the world? Well, you know, let me say before getting into that, G. Gordon Liddy is a, and ha has been a, a wonderful animal advocate and surprising because as you said, a tough guy, a guy who didn't, you know, bend tough under pressure. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, and the notion somehow that, you know, that you're overly sentimental or that you're, you're, you know, just about nuts and honey, if you care about stopping animal cruelty is wrong. And, and, you know, good people, whether they're left, center, right, you know, should have a sense of justice and decency. And it's strong people who can defend the weak. So, uh, you know, I applaud uh, Gordon Liddy for for his work on this issue when I appeared on his radio show, uh, you know, a few times through the years. And I love Martin Liddy. Love him. Yeah, quite, quite a guy. So for me, I didn't have an epiphany like you did where I, I saw this sort of issue in a moment of clarity. I really had this instinctive connection to animals when I was a kid. 
And I just saw them as different, but that their differences weren't disqualifying in terms of our moral attention to them. I thought that the differences were exciting. You know, they had beautiful fur, they ran fast, they were athletic. I thought the differences were cool. And I, I loved animals. I hated the idea of people hurting them. I mean, it was just kind of a misuse of power for me at a fundamental level. And I always hate the misuse of power. And, and um, I, I think that, you know, power is a good thing, but it needs to be wielded uh, carefully and thoughtfully. And it needs, it needs uh, you know, a, a, careful, a careful hand. And once I learned about some of the things that were going on, once I saw images of factory farms and I saw people, you know, clubbing seals in Atlantic Canada, and I saw images of whales being harpooned or elephants being killed for their ivory, I said, my God, this is, you know, this is madness. You know, we're treating these animals as just things to use for whatever purpose we want under the notion that might makes right. And we should be their protectors and not their persecutors. And I just, you know, had that calling essentially and never imagined a career. I was a volunteer. I started as a volunteer animal advocate and eventually uh, a group that I had had uh, done some volunteering with offered me a job and other job offers came and I figured I'd do it for a short time and then get on with what would be a normal career for me. And I just got kind of sucked into it. And it's been a real privilege to serve the Humane Society of the U.S. and to try to drive change. You know, in the last year, we had Ringling Brothers agree to end its elephant traveling acts and SeaWorld to stop the breeding of orcas. We've gotten these big name brands and food retail all to make changes in their supply chain. We revamped the U.S. chemicals law to minimize animal testing. We got 45 airlines to agree to stop shipping trophies of the Africa Big Five, elephants, rhinos, lions, leopards, and Cape Buffalo after the killing of Cecil last summer in oh, Zimbabwe. That was awful. By, that was awful. By, yeah, it was awful. Turned my stomach. So we're, we're making tangible changes, which is what's different, right? The, the ideas have always been worthy, but it's been hard to act upon them. And we have, I think, cracked the code in a society where there's this emerging consciousness and business is paying attention. You know, I speak to major Fortune 500 companies and, and other companies, and, you know, I, I think most people agree that we have real duties to animals. It's remarkable. I mean, some of the results that you've produced recently, I'm sure this has been a 25-year journey. But I'd like to hear how your books have played a role in getting that message out and what you've seen uh, on that front. Well, you know, we are a, a very diverse organization. We're headquartered in Washington, D.C., and we've got state directors in all the U.S. states, or nearly all of them. And then we've got our international operation, Humane Society International, working around the world. And, you know, we do campaigns, but I also really do put a premium on thought leadership, which is, again, the important subject of your show. You know, we had three books this year from our staff. Uh, all were New York Times bestsellers. One guy wrote about a diet and how we should be thinking about food. Another wrote about the consciousness of fish and, and kind of stretching our notions of, of which animals we should be giving attention to. And then I wrote The Humane Economy all best-selling books. 
We also supported a film uh, called At the Fork, which really featured factory uh, farming and, and family farming and kind of showed the contrast uh, between them. It was definitely a pro-farming film, uh, but it was a film that celebrated the connection that farmers have to animals and, and kind of took aim at the disassociation that some uh, industrial operations have toward animals. And those creative works are important in seeding the culture and generating big ideas that then catch fire and then set us up for campaign victories, whether it's a, a political campaign in Congress or a state or in some other nation. You know, we just got Guatemala through our Humanitarian International to adopt an anti-dog fighting and anti-cruelty law. And we, it sets up our corporate gains. It sets up you know, behavioral changes in the, in the world. So thought leadership is important and we place a real premium on generating big ideas. It's awesome, awesome, awesome examples of how you've used. Because I like this idea that you're you're sh- you're shaping and shifting culture to make this actually happen in the world and make the and produce these results that you've been producing. You know, I I would imagine that at times it gets difficult. I'd like to hear from you on the personal side. This show is about as well inspiring people to go out and make the difference that they were born to make. What is it that keeps gives you the energy to keep going, even though there might be big setbacks, and even share some of those setbacks and how you overcame those? Well, it's there's a whole psychological uh, condition called compassion fatigue in our field that is definitely exhibited in animal shelters and wildlife rehabilitation centers, where you see animals suffering tremendously, and you often feel, you know, overwhelmed uh, by the severity as well as the scale of the of the suffering and people you know can't take it anymore they get depressed they leave and i've been doing this for you know 30 years now at some level and and 12 as ceo of the humane society of the u.s and it's hard i mean it is hard once you're alert to the suffering of animals i've been to slaughter plants i've gone to factory farms all over the u.s as well as in other countries I've been to, you know, animal fights. I've been at puppy mills. I've been up to the ice flows in Canada for the seal kill. I've seen, you know, bears shot. I've, I've seen animals in, you know, captive settings where they're in miserable living conditions. I mean, it's painful if you're alert. If you're deadened to that, it's nothing. But if you're alert to it, it's really, it's really profoundly disturbing. So you've got to have some counterweight in your life. And for me, the two things are one people, you know, even talking to the two of you, you know, you being sympathetic to this cause is uplifting to me. Nobody wants to feel alone. Nobody wants to just be the sole proprietor of an idea. And it gives me comfort that these ideas are, are gaining traction with so many people, so many backgrounds and so many places in the world. The second thing is I take pride and celebrate the gains that we've made. I mean, it's an incredible thing when Walmart, which sells 25% of all groceries in the U.S., adopts at our urging the five freedoms of farm animal welfare. One of those freedoms being, you know, the ability to move and engage in natural behaviors. That simple idea is tremendously disruptive to the confinement model of factory farming. When a big company, one of the biggest companies in the world does that, that is a remarkable example of the change that we're seeing in our society. 
And that's what really gives me hope. Fantastic. You know what? One thing you said really uh, is near and dear to Michael and I's hearts. And you said that no one wants to feel alone. And we tell thought leaders, don't do this alone. Be part of a community. Listen to podcasts like this one. Congregate with your fellow thought leaders. Share ideas with them, even if they're not exactly uh, involved in the same area of thought leadership as you are. And uh, I think what you said really touches touches us from that perspective. So as we come to wrap up this fabulous episode, one of the things we like to ask each and every expert is to share their three expert action steps for our listeners, things that they can do as thought leaders to move their thought leadership forward and make the difference they were born to make. Would you go ahead and do that for us now? Well, you know, I mean, I think I think burrowing in and studying your subject and knowing it is important. You know, we all make better decisions and develop big ideas once we really have kind of a base of knowledge about a topic. Uh, you know, second is, you know, once you've got an idea, you've got to develop a plan to, to advance it, you know, whether that's writing a book or, you know, starting a podcast or, you know, starting an organization or joining an organization. I mean, those are, you've got to act on these things. And third is, I, I think you, you've got to be impatient um, at some level and, and push your idea, but you also do have to be patient because some of these ideas take a while to seep in. I mean, you want to push something with vigor, but you also can't expect just because you had a revelation or a very big, important idea that everyone else is on your schedule for acceptance of the idea. So I'm all for kind of a 94-foot full-court press on the basketball court, you know, with, with the idea, but you also have to understand that it's going to take a little while oftentimes. Oh, fantastic. Those were fabulous expert action steps. Now, is there anything specifically that you want to promote? I mean, obviously there's your, your brand new book and some of the other books that your staff have written. If you want to tell the folks about them and, and uh, what they're about for a couple minutes, we'll be sure to include them in our show notes so people can pick them up. Oh, well, great. Well, thank you. I mean, obviously I'd love for people, it'd be flattering for, for me to have people read the book, The Humane Economy. Um, I, I also really am about growing a movement and growing a cause. I want people to become members of the Humane Society of the U.S. People can go to humanesociety.org and sign up, not just to provide the important financial support for the organization that enables so much of our work, but to be part of a larger enterprise. When millions of us work together, we can really move society. And that happens through the collective actions of an organization. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Wayne, this is been one of my favorite episodes so far. You're a really easy subject to interview. Uh, you're very passionate about what you do. Thank you so much for being on the show. What a, what a great pleasure to be on with both of you. Thank you so much for your support. It means it means so much. You bet. Wayne, you, you, and I, I just want to say as well, you've got two supporters up here in Canada. And uh, I think after this episode, people are going to be running to to your organization to follow a, le- a great leader like yourself. So great, great work that you're doing. We support you, and so so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you both. Best of luck with the with the show. You betcha. Take care now. You too, Wayne. 
That wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast. You can find all of the show notes and find out more about Wayne and all of the great things that he's doing at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Please subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'd love to know how we're doing and how we can make the show even better. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening.